Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach, my tra- I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from your blood guilt, O God, the the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Hi, hi everyone. Hey, there I am. Hi everyone, my name is David. Uh, you might have seen me around. I've been with this community for about, coming up on a year now. You'll usually see me in the back seat. Uh, when I first arrived, I sat there because I thought I might want to escape. And then it turns out that I really love this place. Uh, and it's a really an honor and a pleasure to be speaking to you today. So, uh, I thought I pulled the easy straw when I was kind of assigned what Old Testament figure I was speaking about today, because I got King David, beloved Old Testament hero, star of Sunday school stories, you know, with the sheep and the sling and the giant slaying and the sterling character and the great musical talent, King David, considered one of the greatest kings of Israel, wrote most of the Psalms. Jesus himself was a working-class, direct descendant of David. So I got one of the big guns of the New Testament, right? The A-list. You got your Adam, your Moses, your Abraham, a handful of others, and then right there in the middle, David. So I'm excited. Today I get to talk about King David and what we can learn from him together as a 21st century community of faith. I thought I lucked out. So I confess it had been a long while since I'd sat down and read the story of David, so I did so. you find it in your Bibles, by the way, second half of 1 Samuel, the whole of 2 Samuel, and then you get another spin on it in the book of Chronicles. So I read the story, and then I didn't feel so lucky, because uh, in many ways it's a difficult story, complicated story. David's a battle king, and in the story there is this huge, bloody body counts. There's lots of smiting and smoting. People actually sing a song about him a couple times in the book. And the chorus, the lyrics of the chorus is, and David kills people by tens of thousands. Troubles with women, like 
don't send your teenage boys to David for advice about women. Lots of troublesome behavior with women. Now, as a story, it's a great read. You've got like court intrigue, battles, you got all these family lines and warring tribes to keep track of, and lovely stories of betrayal and friendship and honor. And it really reads like a season of Game of Thrones. I kept thinking I'd find like a Starbucks cup in one of the verses. But <laughs> really, it wasn't this stellar story of a life well-lived that I was kind of expecting. Yeah, there's these moments of goodness, but man, there's a lot of troubles. And what I was looking for was evidence of what the Bible famously says that David was like. What's the famous phrase used to describe David's character in the Bible? Anyone? A man after God's own heart, correct? That's a beautiful sentence. That's something I want to aspire to. I want to be a person after God's own heart. That says to me, that's a person who gets God, a person whose character is like God's character. And then at least on my first read-through, I get this guy, a great leader, yeah, the best writer of worship the world's ever seen, yes, but also this colossal cock-up. And thank God for that, by the way, because I am a terrible person when it comes to God in many ways still. So if he gets it, maybe there's hope for me, maybe there's hope for us. Okay, so I'm sitting with the story, asking God, show me why this guy is so great. And there is one scene that kept jumping out at me. Uh, Dina, this morning in the car, asked me what I was preaching on. I told her, and she went, oh, okay. That was the story of King David and Bathsheba, and more importantly, what he did after. Bathsheba, famously ugly story. Many of you know it. It's spring, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The time when kings go to war. But David's not going to war. He's comfortably home in Jerusalem. Right now, the kingdom's thriving. He's at a career peak, if you will. Israel's winning battles left, right, and center. His poll numbers are great at the moment. So he's staying home in Jerusalem while his lads are away fighting. From his window, he sees a naked lady, beautiful, bathing on the roof. He loses his mind. She's Bathsheba, wife of one of his soldiers. He sends for her. And then the birds and the bees and etc. he sleeps with her. She finds out she's pregnant and tells the king so. It's an ugly story already. And then it gets worse. Her husband, Uriah, good man, gets back from battle with his men. They're camped just outside the city, still on duty. And David hatches a plan, see, because a pregnant wife is only a problem for him if her husband has been away during the whole time she got pregnant. So in this sort of black comedy sequence... David sends for Uriah, says, good job out on the battlefield, man. You deserve a break. Go home, rest, and why not make love to your wife? Uriah says, no, it wouldn't be fair to the other men. I can wait. Strike one. David gets a little desperate. The next night, he sends for Uriah again, and the Bible tells us, gets him wasted. Same thing, but this time to a drunk guy. Defense is down, right? And why not you go home to your wife? Drunk Uriah, no, wouldn't be fair. I'll wait. And so in true desperation, David sends Uriah with a letter to his general. The letter says, next battle, put Uriah in the front and make sure he gets killed. Uriah gets killed. Problem solved. David takes the pregnant widow Bathsheba for his wife. No one's the wiser. See, at this point, David's gotten away with it. 
He's done wrong and walked away. Or so he thinks. The trouble is, someone is the wiser. God was watching. And this is the part of the story that got to me. 2 Samuel chapter 12 starts with, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We don't know much about David, uh, about Nathan. Nathan's this lovely, wise prophet, spiritual advisor to King David. And Nathan tells David this great story. There's this poor man I heard about in the kingdom, see, he says. And this guy is so poor, he only has one sheep, and he loves that sheep like a crazy person. The sheep has supper with the man and his family right at the table. The sheep drinks water right from his cup, treats him just like people. Crazy, right? But he's got this neighbor, this rich guy, stupid rich. And he's got an out-of-town guest arriving that he has to feed. You know how that goes. Now, this rich guy has so many sheep, has everything he could possibly need, but he's got to feed his guests, so he sneaks over and takes the poor man's sheep, slits its throat, skins it, butchers it, serves it to his guest. you believe it? That's Nathan's story. In 2 Samuel, David loses his mind. He promises to go all like Judge Judy on the guy. He's like completely worked up in a rage about how awful people could be. Nathan lets him sit in his rage for a minute and then looks him in the eye and says, you are that man. And in that second, David wakes up. That part of his brain that fell asleep through the whole ugly story. You know how that can happen? It wakes up. And it's in how David reacts. It's in what David does next that shows me what people who are after God's own heart are sometimes like. He looks God in the eye, he looks Nathan in the eye, he looks himself in the eye, and he says, yeah, I am that man. He sees that he's done wrong, and he doesn't run from it. He listens, and he does the right thing. So that's the question I've ended up asking myself all week, and asking us as a community of faith, kind of heavy, but I promise it's not too heavy on the hellfire. What do we do with the wrong that we do? So I'm going to use a word today a few times, a word that's fallen out of favor in Christianity in the 21st century, but for convenience, I'm going to use it. It's a loaded word. The word is sin. Sin. I wish I had like a button for echoing. And listen, it's a word that has justly earned its unpopularity. We've done it. Because in the history of the church, we've abused it, the word and the concept. We've weaponized it bashed people over the head with it, outsiders. But we've also turned it on ourselves as Christians. I I grew up in the church, but with a very unhealthy idea of sin. I had this idea that you're supposed to feel shame. You're supposed to feel shame, and shame is good because you remember that way that you're nothing but a worm, and the way that you're grateful and worshipful to God is that you, you know, slither into God's presence with your little wormly trail of slime behind you. And by the way, every week before you take communion, you bow your head and you think of all the wormly things you've wormed all week long, and you end up thinking really in the back of your head that God might kind of hate you, even though you sing all the time about how God loves you. And I was sort of waiting my whole young life for God to kind of crush me like a, like a bug or like the worm that I was. And friends, this is a destructive, unchristian anti-biblical way for us to think about the wrong that we do. We're not supposed to live in shame. But then 
maybe we've run too far in the opposite direction sometimes. We focused on the nice, friendly things about our faith, and now maybe we take our bad things, our sin, a little less seriously than we ought to. But we can't ignore the fact, I can't ignore the fact that doing away with the bad things that I do is a central pursuit of our faith. Not the only one, but one of them. We are supposed to leave this stuff behind. We are supposed to be working at being in progress towards being really good people. We're supposed to be becoming increasingly good at being good and increasingly bad at being bad. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come today, right? And that's us saying to God, today, let the world around me look like the world you want it to be. A world where everyone gets to live in love, everyone gets to live free, and everyone gets to live unhampered, unimpeded by the evil around them. And so the wrong I do can stand in the way of that kingdom coming today. I'm going to read you a good, interesting definition of what sin is. It's from a novel called Carpe Jugulum by the late Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett, master, social satirist, great novelist, avowed atheist, but he takes on religion in some useful ways in one of his novels. So one of his great characters, this old wise woman, Granny Weatherwax, is facing down a bunch of vampires, whatever, it's a stupid book. Uh, but she's in the company of a wheezy young revival preacher named Mightily Oates. Take a look at this conversation they have. And that's what your holy men discuss, is it, said Granny. Not usually, said Oates. There's a very interesting debate raging at the moment about the nature of sin, for example. And what do they think? Against it, are they? It's not as simple as that. It's not a black and white issue. There are so many shades of gray. Nope. Pardon? There's no grays, only white that's got grubby. I love that. I'm surprised you don't know that. And sin, young man, is when you treat people as things, including yourself. That's what sin is. I'm going to skip the rest of it. But that's a good starting point to define sin. Treating people, as, uh, treating people as things, as objects. One other thing, too. Treating God as a thing or an object a dusty knick-knack that we keep on a shelf. We ignore it when it's convenient. We take God out and rub it when we need a wish granted or when we need to feel good. And that's how David got into this terrible mess in this story. The God he loves becomes a thing that can be ignored. Bathsheba isn't a wife and a woman and a human being with her own life to live anymore. She's a thing to own. Uriah isn't a person. He's a thing in the way of what David wants. I want to say, I, I said it already, I, I love this church. I love St. Clair. And I love the heart of St. Clair and that we're dreaming together of being a community of people devoted to God, loving our neighborhoods, loving our city, hospitable people, praying people who eat together and feed together and worship together and work together. But if we want that together, and if I want to be a part of that, if we want to optimize conditions for all that goodness to keep happening, we also have to be people who are committed, intent on listening to God about the wrong we still do and practicing leaving it behind until we leave it behind. David and Bathsheba really reminded me of this this week. But I have to be careful to not put too much weight on the difference between big sin 
and little sin. See, when we Christians get inspired to get good, you go to that youth retreat or whatever, and you decide you're going to come back and be the holiest man who ever lived, we tend to go right to our big, noticeable things. The pornography addiction, the dishonesty at work, the cheating, the, I don't know what your problem is, the embezzlement. (laughs) Or, if we don't have any big stuff to deal with, we tend to think we're doing pretty good, or at least better than that guy in our small group who has a bigger problem than we do. But the truth is, the little messes are symptoms of the same inner problem as the big messes. Rot that knocks down a whole house, or rot that creeps out as little spots between the bathroom tiles, it's all rot. So those little resentments that collect in my head, that's still hatred in there. The little untruths, that little bit of anger at the guy in Tim Hortons who takes forever to order. It's a real problem with me, actually. But the world isn't going to end from a little thing like that. But a little thing like that still does hinder me, cripple my ability to be a light in a dark world. You know, we would all sort of agree that a, a church full of, I don't know, raging, hateful, adulterer, alcoholic maniacs doing whatever they want isn't going to be the most effective at carrying God's presence to the world. But do we all just a little sometimes think that maybe it's okay if we're a room full of people who are just a little bit dishonest? A little bit of gossip, so long as we call it a prayer request. A little bit of anger, a little bit of dividing people into worth talking to and not worth talking to. Maybe that's okay, a little bit. This is heavy, right? I promise it gets happy. George MacDonald, 19th century Scottish preacher and writer, says this. I think I've got it on slide. There is no escape There is no heaven with a little of hell in it. No place to retain this or that of the devil in our hearts or our pockets. Out Satan must go, every hair and feather. So good. Now, if we stop there, then we're all just worms doing wormly things. But thank God it all has a happy ending. See, once we're convinced that the wrong we do matters, that it's something that we need to take care of, that it stands in the way, we know what to do with it. And what we do with it is we don't wallow in it. That's a kind of ego in itself, by the way. Now, getting sin and wrong behavior out of us is deadly serious work, but we as Christians are just supposed to look at it like work, like training, like exercise. And yeah, it makes me sore, makes you tired, back to the gym day after day, but it works when we keep at it. So we get this wonderful personal perspective on the David and Bathsheba story and what David does next in the Bible. David himself writes it all down. Hannah read it for us. Psalm 51. It's this beautiful, heartbreaking piece written by a man who knows he's messed up. He wrote it all down. We're not going to take it apart and examine it today piece by piece, but even a brief flyer gives us some practical wisdom on how to tackle the wrong we do. Uh, In the first two verses, I think they're up there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And then blot it out. Wash me. Clean me up. See, the first thing David does is he acknowledges. He goes to God and says, Dad, I messed up. 
You won't do anything about the wrong you do till you actually see it, till you acknowledge it. Or someone tells you a story with a sheep in it about it. And you realize it. Then in the sixth verse, he says, you delight in truth. No, that's whatever. In whatever verse. You delight in truth in my innermost being. You teach me truth in my secret heart. So David doesn't stop at the moment where he says, I'm awful, I've done evil, I'm wrong, worm, worm, worm. He asks himself, if this is what's wrong, then what's right? God, if you don't want hatred in the middle of me, even a little bit, what should there be in its place? If you don't want that anger in the middle of me, what should be there instead? Whatever it is that I've recognized, what should be instead? Not darkness, but light. Not the lie, but truth. Not rage, but love. Not foolishness, but wisdom. See, it's already starting to get beautiful. This is not worm stuff. This is battle king stuff. And in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So I've acknowledged the wrong. I've envisioned what it should be instead. And now I get to bring the power. We don't do this on our own. We ask God to transform it. Our goodness is not this little gift that we bring to God. It's something God gives us. Look, God, I found something. Please fix it. Create in me a clean heart because I busted this one. And then verse 13 and 14 really get to the heart of the matter for me. It's It's the why. Why am I doing this? Then I will teach rebels, one, trans, uh, one translation puts it. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me, O God, it says later, and my tongue will sing of your goodness. Open my mouth, and I will declare your praise. See, forgiven people who've left their sin or have begun to leave their badness behind get two things out of the deal. They get to be useful. They get to be part of showing God's ways and God's goodness to people who need it. And secondly, they get conditions optimized in their own life to enjoy their own closeness with God. I get to teach your ways to rebels, and I get to sing of the goodness of God. Because I know it now, and I'm living it, and I'm loving it. It isn't any of this. It's just work, beautiful work. Uh, To finish up with, uh, in a moment, not yet, we're going to now read, it won't take too long, Every single verse in the New Testament where God's people are called sinners. We're going to read them together, see what we can learn from that. I put them all on slides, won't take too long, and we're going to read them together now. Can you throw that next slide up, please? Is it there? Yeah, not once. We're called new creations. We're called sons and daughters of God. We're called light of the world and conquerors and saints and co-heirs with Christ. Sin is what we still do, but it's not who we are, which is all the more reason why we need to practically get it out of what we're doing. It's just lingering symptoms of a sickness that Jesus has already cured. There it is. The blank worked as well. It's not who we are. We're not sinners. We're not worms. We're battle kings rooting out the darkness inside ourselves. We're people now, no matter what we do, who are after God's own heart. Because of Jesus. Uh, The New Testament sacrificial system, David would have known a lot about it. It's 
five sacrifices people would do. Reparation, purification, burnt grain, peace. You used to have a prof who made us chant that. It's this beautiful approach to God. Reparation, you fix things with other people. Purification, you deal with your own sin. Burnt, everything I am I give to you, God. Grain, everything I have I give to you, God. And then the last sacrifice was the peace offering. And Jesus sets himself and communion up really as an enactment of the peace offering. And there's one key difference in the sacrifice known as the peace offering. It's the only sacrifice where put meat on the altar, offer it to God, and you get to eat some yourself. It's a meal with God, a meal that says, I've approached you, I've done everything I can to say that I'm yours and you are mine, and now let's eat together. And in the Gospels, Jesus himself sets himself, his body, his blood up as that for us. The meal that we get to eat with God to say we are at peace, no matter what we've done, no matter who we are. And that's why on the night that he was betrayed with friends, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, an offering, a sacrifice. Take it. Eat it. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant, the new th- way things work in my blood. Take, drink. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you remember my death and what it accomplished till I come again.